You guys can be seated. Thank you. I want to welcome you to Southwinds this morning. We're so glad that you are here. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 28. And today we are completing our study we call Sent, um, our journey through uh, this book of Acts that we started last fall. And as we get into this study today in Acts 28, I want to ask you a question. How many of you have ever been watching a TV show and it was, had you on the edge of your seat and you couldn't wait to find out how it's all going to turn out, and then it all stops, and up on the screen are the words, to be continued. <laughs> and you got to come back and watch another episode or another part of the story. And I ask that because I wonder if anyone else read Acts 28 and felt that way. Uh, you read through the book of Acts, and you come to this last chapter, and you get to the end, and you actually might be a little surprised. You might be a little frustrated because you might find yourself thinking, where's the rest of the story? Like, is there an Acts 29? And am I missing a page in my Bible? Because we, for weeks now, we've been reading about how Paul is going to stand before Caesar. God promised him that he was going to stand before Caesar, but Acts ends, and we don't see Paul standing before Caesar. Uh, we, we hear in the New Testament that Paul wants to go to Spain, and we never find out. Does he get to go to Spain? We don't, we don't know. Does he live? Does he die? When does this all happen? And I just want to tell you, as we get to the end of this study, as we finish Acts, we need to remember a couple of things. First of all, we need to remember that Luke is not writing Paul's biography. Luke's purpose was to write about the unstoppable nature of the gospel, the unstoppable progress. And he actually is ending this book in the same way he started it. Maybe remember Acts chapter 1, verse 1, where he says, in my first book, Theophilus, and that of course, is the gospel of Luke. I wrote down all that Jesus began to do and to teach. And then he says, in this book, the book of Acts, I'm going to write about what Jesus is continuing to do and to teach through the church by the power of the Holy Spirit. And what we're meant to understand as we get to the end of Acts, and Luke ends it this way, is that we're meant to see Jesus continuing his work. See, the gospel has now made it to Rome. It's the very center of the world. The apostle Paul is there. The gospel is bearing fruit. And Luke just wants us to leave with a picture of the triumph of the gospel. In other words, Luke wants us to remember that Jesus is the hero of the story. Not Paul, not Peter, not anyone else. But I think Luke also uh, kind of leaves us hanging to make a second point. And that is this. Luke is saying this book may be finished, but the mission isn't. The mission is to continue. And he's really telling us that we are Acts 29, that Christ followers get to be part of the story. This is really what is beautiful about Acts. We are learning. We've been learning all the way through. And now the way it ends, it enforces it once more that we are Acts 29. We are sent to continue this story. And so what I want you to understand as we look at this last passage today in Acts 28 is we're going to be looking at what an Acts 29 church is like. We're going to see what a sent people looks like. We're going to see what people, a church that continues to do the mission of Jesus looks like. And so I want to point out four characteristics of a church and of Christ followers who continue to live sent, who continue the mission, who are living in Acts 29. Uh, they're going to be on your message notes, so you can write them down. Here's the first one. Uh, we make the most 
of every ministry opportunity. Well, look at verse 16. It says, when we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. So we saw Paul when he arrived in Rome last week. We looked at that. And, and, and uh, now that he's there, we are told by Luke that he is bound by chain to a soldier. But Paul doesn't stop doing ministry. Uh, Paul um, is in a house of his own. It says in verse 30, we're told that he rents a home at his own expense. So this tells us he's living uh, under a, a kind of relaxed form of house arrest. That means he's able to welcome visitors and a lot of people are coming by. In other words, Paul is going to make the most of his situation. How, how does he do that? Well, two ways are very clear as we study the New Testament. The first is he is sharing the gospel at every opportunity. We're going to see this in this chapter. He's evangelizing uh, the Roman imperial guard. He's evangelizing Jewish people in Rome. He's evangelizing anybody who comes and visits him in his home. He's just telling people about Jesus every chance he gets. And the second thing that Paul is going to do while he's under house arrest is he is teaching truth at every opportunity. I don't know if you've ever realized this or not, but Paul actually writes four of the letters that we have in our New Testament during this imprisonment. He writes Ephesians, he writes Philippians, he writes Colossians, and he writes Philemon. And it's kind of an interesting thing. If you take those letters and you look at this chapter and you put them together, we get a lot of light shed on what Paul is doing during this time. Let me give you some examples. In Colossians, there's a, a very familiar passage, Colossians 4, 2 through 6, that, that talks about how Paul is making the most of every ministry opportunity. Uh, he was sharing the gospel with his guards. And so there would have been this rotation of Roman guards. Every four hours, a new Roman guard gets chained to Paul. That means that Paul, every four hours, is getting fresh meat. I mean, um, new people to tell about Jesus. I mean, just this steady supply, guards coming. You know, and, and I'm sure with Paul, it didn't matter if you were there the day before and he told you about Jesus before, he would tell you again because you hadn't responded yet. So he's just talking to these people about Jesus. Some of them came to Christ. Look what he says in verse, verses 2 through 6, Colossians 4. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may Proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. So Paul, he's in prison. And he's not thinking about himself. He's not saying, I'll take a break. I need the rest. He's just saying, I have to make the most of every opportunity. And so he asks these people in Colossae to pray for him. He says, pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. This tells us we need to be clear with the gospel. Paul knows that, that clarity requires spiritual power from God because there is a seeing that is not seeing, and there is a seeing that is seen, and we need God's help for people to truly see. And so he asks for prayer. Verse 5, he says, Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. This is what Paul is doing in prison. What are you doing when you're not in prison? Are you making the most of every opportunity to do ministry? See, we have a tendency uh, to play these two games. And game one is, well, you know, I used to do ministry. Or game two is, well, I'm going to get around to doing ministry one of these days. Paul doesn't live like that. 
Because it's not about how you used to live and it's not about how you might live one day. It's about what are you doing now? Are you making the most of opportunities? You know, and you might need to ask yourself, what in your life is causing you to think that you can put ministry on pause? Uh, Another example of what Paul's doing, we find in the short little book uh, called Philemon, just one chapter. And, And Paul is writing to a friend of his named Philemon because one of Philemon's servants ran away, a guy named Onesimus. And he shows up in Rome, and somehow, we don't know how, he finds Paul, he meets Paul, and Paul leads Onesimus to meet Jesus, and he gets converted. And I'm sure that Onesimus was thankful because Paul was making the most of his opportunities. And, and Paul writes back to Onesimus' boss, his friend Philemon, and he wants to tell him, you need to welcome this, this guy back because he's a brother now. He says, therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. I then, as Paul, an old man and now also a minister of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. We don't know how many people became Christians while Paul was in prison, but you get the impression it was quite a few. See, Paul, he's not free. He's chained. He can't go where he wants to go, but when people come to him, he does what he needs to do. He shares his faith. He shares the gospel. If you look at Philippians, we see uh, more about what was going on. In Philippians 1, uh, starting in verse 12, Paul writes, now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. So Paul doesn't look at his imprisonment as an impediment to him. He sees it as an advancement for the gospel. And this is happening among the imperial guard. We know from history that there may have been as many as 9,000 Roman guards at this time, and you kind of get the idea that this was the talk of the guards. This gospel was being discussed. It was spreading even to the palace officials. Maybe it was even spilling out onto the streets in Rome because Paul is not complaining. Paul is proclaiming. Paul keeps telling these guards about Jesus, and they keep telling other people about Jesus, and people keep coming to faith. Paul's not wasting time. Are you? Um, I was two weeks ago uh, when I was in Dallas for um, a meeting. Uh, I was in church on this, this day, you know, two weeks ago, at uh, Matt Chandler's church. Matt Chandler is a pretty famous pastor and author. And I was reminded recently of a testimony that he gave about how he came to faith in Christ. He was not raised as a Christian. He was a teenager, and he was playing on the high school football team. And one day, the guy who had his locker next to him, who was a Christian, said to him, Matt, I'm going to share the gospel with you, and I want you to just let me know when you're ready to hear it. And Matt let him know one day, and he shared the gospel, and Matt became a Christian you know, think about that. We, we don't know who this teenager was. Probably no one but Matt and a few of his friends know. And yet, his simple sharing of the faith changed one man's life, and it is reverberated out to change tens of thousands of lives because somebody made the most of a ministry opportunity. That's what Paul was doing. 
me show you a second thing that an Acts 29 church does to continue the mission. Uh, we teach everyone we can about Jesus from God's word. Now, again, that's what Paul is doing as this book comes to a close. We see him first speaking with Jewish people. Later, we're going to see him talking to everyone. Look at verses 17 and following. Luke writes, three days later, he called together the leaders of the Jews. When they had assembled, Paul said to them, my brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. But when the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, not that I had any charge to bring against my own people. For this reason, I have asked to see you and talk with you. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. Verse 21, they replied, We have not received any letters from Judea concerning you, and none of the brothers who have come from there has reported or said anything bad about you. But we want to hear what your views are, for we know that people everywhere are talking against the sect. So Paul speaks to these Jewish people. They don't know anything about him and his trial, and most likely uh, it is because the Jewish leaders in Judea had dropped the charges. They figured, now that Paul's gone, we really can't pursue this, and, and, and so they just backed off completely. And I think verse 22 is a striking verse because these people say, we want to hear your views, Paul. And I know that Paul loves that. And then they say, everyone is talking about Christianity. That sounds good. Uh, But they're actually talking against Christianity. And this is just a reminder to us that it has always been this way. It was in the beginning. It still is today. Paul responds by first stressing his innocence. He wants them to know he's not antagonistic to his people. But what he really wants them to know, verse 20, is that he is in Rome because of the hope of Israel. What he really wants them to know is that Jesus, the promised Messiah for the Jewish people, has come and God has raised him from the dead. Paul keeps proclaiming the risen Christ. And so they hear this message. That leads them to set up another meeting. And Paul begins to tell them more. Verse 23 says, They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. From morning till evening, he explained and declared to them the kingdom of God and tried to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And so larger numbers of people are showing up now. And they're interested at first. So what does Paul do? Well, I'm going to slow down for a minute here on this verse because Paul is, he's teaching, he's explaining the Bible, but I want you to see exactly how he's doing it. Three characteristics that are important for us as we tell people uh, from the scriptures about Jesus. The first comes from this phrase, from morning till evening, and I want to put on that uh, the phrase, as long as it takes. Now, it's interesting thing about Paul Uh, how long he could talk. I mean, he had some amazing preaching stamina. You might say he's an energizer expositor. Um, He just keeps going. He preaches all day. And, you know, some of you, you think I talk a long time. You should be grateful that Paul is not your pastor because he would preach for hours and he would never say sorry. He would just keep going. You know, he, he does this here from morning till evening. We know in Troas, he preached all night. Remember, Eutychus falls out of the third story window and he dies and Paul raises him back because, you know, Paul had preached so long. I mean, even apostles sometimes are boring, I think. Um, Acts, 19, Acts 19 says that 
he was teaching in the hall of Tyrannus every day for two years. Now, Paul is just talking as long as it takes. And here's what we need to see. If it takes this long for Jewish people immersed in the Old Testament scriptures to get the gospel, how much more might it take for people in our secular culture who have no mental framework at all for Christianity? We need to remember that it often takes a really long time for people to understand what we're talking about. This meeting he had, it wasn't a quick little, you know, three-minute gospel presentation. Sometimes we think if we just go through a little tract that has some basic four steps, three steps, whatever, that that's all we need to do. And sometimes it is, but many times it's not. And Paul was just taking his time explaining God's plan. We should be reminded that if we're going to unpack the gospel to unbelievers, especially people in our culture today who come from other religious faiths, or people who have no concept of a Christian worldview, this may take a long time. And we should be willing to take the time. You know, I talk about this in our discovery classes, how in our area, probably only 20% of the people around us are Christ followers. That's a best case scenario. And the younger people get around us, the lower that number drops. We live in a post-Christian culture. We live in a time where the majority of people have completely different worldviews than the worldview of the Bible. They read the Bible and they don't get it. It's a foreign language to them. Uh, We may need many times to do something you may not have heard of. Uh, Some people call this pre-evangelism. And what that basically means is you need to spend time with some people explaining some concepts in Scripture before we even get to the call for repentance in the gospel. We, we have to provide a framework for them so that they can just understand what the Bible is saying. See, we have assumptions that we bring that they don't get because they have no concept of basic Christian stories, basic Christian principles. And that means for us, We have to be patient. Someone has said that Paul exhibits apostolic patience, and we need that kind of patience too, just to keep talking with people, just to keep explaining to people, just to to take as long as it takes to help them see the message. You know, even when people listen to us, some of you have had this happen, they're listening, they're really open. Even when they listen, sometimes they'll say to us, well, I need to keep thinking about this. They may not respond right away, so we need to patiently teach. And I know, yes, it's true, sometimes people are quickly converted. Praise God for that. But many times, we're going to have to persist. We're going to have to be faithful. We're going to have to not grow weary in well-doing. Second thing we see is from the phrase, from the law of Moses and the prophets, and let me call this using all of God's word. You know, Luke uh, ends Acts 28 pretty much the same way he ends his gospel in Luke 24, where Jesus was teaching from the law and the prophets and showing how all of the Old Testament pointed to himself. And so uh, Jesus is doing this at the end of Luke. Paul is doing this at the end of Acts. Does anybody say, you know, pick up the clue phone, maybe we should be doing this too. Maybe we should be opening the Bible and pointing people to Jesus. I think that's a good idea. How about you? Now, some of you are saying, you went to seminary for that, Captain Obvious. (laughs) Well, here's the question. If it's so obvious, how come you're not doing it? 
How many of us truly are regularly doing this? How many of us are actually taking the scriptures and pointing people to Jesus? You see, this is the, this is the pattern of the book of Acts. And we're just continuing Jesus' mission. That's what we are sent to do. You say, well, what exactly are we teaching? Well, Paul shows us there's two main concepts here, uh, the kingdom of God and Jesus. And they're obviously tied together because to have a kingdom, you need a king, right? Sound good? Uh, we're, we're kind of like a band with just one song that we sing, Jesus and the kingdom, Jesus and the kingdom. And we're not told here, exactly what Paul was saying about the kingdom, but here are some things he might have talked about. He could have, he could have contrasted the unending reign of King Jesus with the kingdom of Caesar. You know, because in the Roman world, to say Jesus is Lord was to say Caesar is not. And that's what Paul was saying. He could have talked about how this king, Jesus, uh, doesn't take lies. He gives his own life for rebellious sinners. Paul could have talked about the inside-out nature of the gospel, how the gospel is about changed hearts that lead to changed lives. It's not about external rule-keeping. He could have talked about maybe the upside-down nature of the gospel, how if you humble yourself, then God will exalt you. But if you exalt yourself, God will humble you. He could have talked about the already-not-yet nature of the kingdom, how the kingdom of God is here. It has come right now, today in Jesus, but it's not fully consummated yet, and it won't be until Jesus comes again. He could have talked about how Jesus as king today rules in our hearts and how he rules in people's hearts in the midst of his enemies and how his people, that's us, say that's us, how we are to display his kingdom values and therefore give the people around us a foretaste of what the kingdom is going to look like when it comes in fullness. He could have talked about how the church is an outpost of God's kingdom, how it's a little embassy set in enemy territory of the kingdom to come. He could have talked about how we need to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, how everyone must bow the knee to King Jesus and submit to him or perish. You understand, don't you? You don't get to negotiate with the king. You must submit. You know, we could keep going, but these are just a few of the concepts that we see in the scriptures related to this massive theme of, of the scripture. And Jesus was, uh, Paul was pulling these things from the law and the prophets and sharing them with these people. Uh, Luke says also that he was teaching about Jesus. He was telling them who Jesus was and how the prophets predicted his coming and how God brought about his birth and how Jesus lived his life and how he was crucified and how God the Father raised him from the dead. He was just sharing these things. Are we? You know, I've encountered Jehovah Witnesses recently. Um, every week, I see Mormon missionaries riding their bikes through Tracy, don't you? Every day, I see Muslims and Hindus in my neighborhood. How, how about you? You see, it's not like, we need to be reminded, it's not like uh, people don't believe in anything. All people are incurably religious. You may say today, you're here in church checking things out. You may say, I'm not a religious person. That's just not true. Everybody's a religious person, whether they realize it or not, because we've been made in the image of God. The real question is, what do you believe? Because everybody believes something. And we need to understand as God's people, if we don't make the real Jesus known, someone else with another message, a false message, will step in to that vacuum and they will share what they think is right. 
You know, one of the reasons groups like that, that I've mentioned have flourished is that we as Christ followers have not faithfully proclaimed Jesus and his kingdom. So we, we just need to do what Paul is doing. Open the Bible, make Jesus known. We need to share the gospel. That's what Paul is modeling for us, and that is what we need to do. The third characteristic is always seeking to convince. It says Paul tried to convince them about Jesus. In other words, Paul was not just transferring information. He's trying to impress truth onto their hearts so that they might believe. And in the same way, we're not just passing on information. We're telling truth so that people's hearts may change and they may believe. It's a heart issue. We're going to talk about this more um, as we keep going, but it's always a hard issue, and we need to understand that. We need never to forget that. Notice verse 24. What was the response? Well, some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. And we again see, we've been seeing this all through Acts, that when the gospel is faithfully and clearly shared, some will respond, but usually not all. This word convinced tells us that some of these people were truly converted. But we also need to know this. Convinced and converted are not always the same thing. Do you know that it's possible to be convinced but not converted? In fact, there may be someone here and you're convinced, but you're not really converted. You you may say, I believe Jesus is God's son. You may even say, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world. That doesn't mean you're converted. You can agree with something in your head, but you've not placed your heart and your soul and your life in trust into that truth. You know, it, it, it takes more than just agreeing with certain doctrinal truths. And so we need to be convinced And we need to also give our lives to Jesus to be converted. Well, Paul makes a parting statement and everyone leaves in this situation here with these people. Verse 25 says, They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made this final statement. He says, The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your forefathers when he said through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, you will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts in turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. Now, Paul is quoting Isaiah 6, 9 and 10 here, and it's kind of an interesting thing. That passage is quoted in the New Testament six different times. And each time, it's about hearing but rejecting. Paul is speaking these words to some people who have heard the message, but they refuse to believe. And it's a fitting statement in this context, but it's not just fitting back then. It still applies today. You know, in the parable of the four soils, Jesus quotes this passage. He's telling a story about how people hear the word. And he talks about seed that is sown. And he says some people just reject the word. And some people, the word is there briefly, but the evil one snatches it away. And some people, the word uh, gets thrown into a place where there's thorns. And the word gets choked out by the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. And then some people receive the word and there's fruit. See, it's so important that we remember, please hear me, that something is always 
happening when the word is, is taught and preached. When people hear the word, something's always happening. It's happening right now, whether you realize it or not. You know, the same sun that melts the ice also hardens the clay. And you are here right now, and either you're hearing and you are moving towards sanctification, or you're hearing and you're not responding, and you are growing more hardened to the message of God's word. Something is always happening whenever God's word is proclaimed. It's happening right now. It's happening. And we need to be reminded so we don't take this casually because there can come a time if you push back and you don't listen and you refuse to respond and you excuse what you're hearing and you rationalize it away, there can come a time maybe even in your life where the Father just lets you loose. And he gives you over to whatever it is you are choosing over him. We don't want to get this way. You cannot remain neutral and hear the word of God. And that is why the Bible is so persistent. God loves you. And he just keeps saying to us, be careful how you're hearing. Be careful how you're perceiving. See, how are you responding to the word? And Paul is just telling these Jewish people who've rejected the message that the prophet Isaiah was right about them. But this is not at all a negative thing, complete. Notice the flip side. Notice the optimism that is here. Paul says, if you hear, I will save you. He says, if you hear, I will heal you. And that is a great way to talk about conversion because we are sick with sin and Jesus heals us. We are broken, messed up people. And those who hear the word properly and repent in faith, they are healed. That's good news. That's what we preach. And we're not the healers. Jesus is the one who heals. And Jesus can heal our messed up lives. Amen? Amen. Has Jesus healed you? You know, I wish that we had all the time that we needed to hear all the stories that many of you have told me about how Jesus healed you. And some of you, Some of you were sick with addictions, spiraling downward, out of control. Some of you are ready to end your life, and Jesus healed you. Some of you, Jesus met you in your struggle, and he hasn't taken it away. It's still there, but he keeps you, and he sustains you, and he is healing you. Some of you, You've always looked pretty good on the outside. In fact, you look pretty much perfectly fine to people who are looking at you externally. You've always had a job. You've always been doing the right thing. You've always been living the kind of life society says good people should live. That's you. But you know inside you were sick with pride, sick with anger and resentment, sick with lust, sick with all kinds of things. You were hurting maybe the people closest to you, and you wouldn't stop. You couldn't stop. But Jesus met you, and he healed you, and he saved you. See, Jesus, in his grace, heals us when we respond to his word. And aren't you glad? 
Aren't you glad? You know, sometimes people tell me, you know, Mike, uh, I'm just not one of those religious types. I'm going to tell you today, uh, everybody's religious. I said it a moment ago. Let me say it again. There are not just certain types of people who become Christians. You need to understand there are no types of people more likely to respond to Jesus. All types of people can turn to Jesus because Jesus saves and heals all kinds of people who will humble themselves before his word. The real question is, have you done that? Are you humble? Will you repent of your sins and turn to him? And if you are and you don't know how to do it, we'll be happy to help you with that. That is exactly why we are here. Amen, church? Amen. <laughs> and you can actually do that today. You can trust in Jesus today. And you can be baptized today because we're going to be baptizing a few hours from now. You can do that today. And that's, that's what Paul is really saying to these people in verse 28. He's telling them, if you're going to not respond, I've told you, you can't say that you haven't heard. You are now rejecting it, but there are some people who will listen. And I'll say to you today, if you're rejecting this today, you've heard. You've been told the truth. Now you need to respond, and you can respond. See, we must be a people who are teaching the nations about King Jesus from the Scriptures. But Paul knows that we can't do that in our own strength. We need the Spirit's help. And so that's the third thing that we see an Acts 29 church doing to continue the mission. Number three, we ask God to grant us Spirit-empowered boldness. Now we come at this point to Luke's sudden ending, verse 30. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, we're being reminded, Paul's rented a home. He's probably uh, working his trade. He's resuming the making of tents. And so during this period of time, his house arrest, he's receiving all these visitors. And what is he doing? He's still preaching the kingdom of God. He's still talking about Jesus. But this time, Luke adds, boldly. Now, literally, the Greek text has three words, with all boldness. And it just reminds us that boldness is what we need. Because, can we talk? We know what to say. Sometimes people tell me, I don't know what to say. I want to tell you, you do know what to say. You do know what to say. The problem we have is that we're not bold. And when there's boldness, there is power. Uh, in Acts 4.13, uh, we're told when they saw Peter and John's boldness, they concluded they had been with Jesus. In Acts 4.29-31, the church prayed that the Spirit would grant them boldness, and he did. This is something that doesn't come from within us. You know, if you feel timid about sharing your faith, you need to know today you are not unusual. You are normal. It's normal to be uncertain. It's normal to feel timidity. The question is, what do you do with that timidity and insecurity? The question is, will you ask God for help? See, let's ask him for it. And Paul was bold. And I just want to point out that Paul remained bold because he maintained this uh, unshakable confidence in the gospel, the power of the gospel. Luke also says that Paul continued to proclaim Jesus without Hindrance. That's one word in the Greek text, akalutos, and that word actually is the 
final word in this book. And it just is Luke putting his emphasis on this point that nothing is going to stop the progress of the gospel. The gospel is being proclaimed. Luke ends this story without hindrance. I want to tell you, here's what the book of Acts should be doing in our hearts. It should be giving us confidence. See, what do you preach when you get to the mighty political center of the entire world, the capital of Rome? You preach the message of a crucified, resurrected Messiah. What do you say? What do you share when you live in 21st century America, a land that is becoming increasingly skeptical and increasingly hostile to the claims of the gospel, a place, a, a place where many of us find that as we tell people what we believe, they call us hateful, they call us intolerant, they call us something plus phobic, whatever that is. What do you say when you live in a place like that? What do we do? We do what Paul did. We proclaim the gospel. We preach the message of a crucified, resurrected Messiah. Some of us may wonder, don't we have anything else? (laughs) The answer is no, but we don't need anything else because it is that message, the gospel, that saves. You know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians that the gospel is foolishness to some, but to those of us who believe it is the power of God. One of the um, oldest sketches that we have of a crucifixion is in a Rome uh, museum right now. I want to show you a picture of this. On the left is the actual sketch, and it's kind of hard to see. And so on the right, you have kind of a tracing of what has been etched into this, this stone here. And what it is, I'll interpret it for you, is a picture of a guy on a cross, but with the head of a donkey. And if there's a donkey head there, that's not a compliment. You just need to have that clue right there right from the beginning. And in front of the guy in the cross, head of the donkey, is a Roman soldier who is bowed down in worship. And in mockery, someone has inscribed, and the words that are there, which you can't read, uh, this is what these words say in the Greek text. It says, Alexa Minos worships his God. See, the world may mock. The world mocked Roman soldiers who worship Jesus 2,000 years ago. The world mocks us today. Many of these soldiers that Paul shared with became Christians. We know that from Philippians 4.22, the ending of that letter where Paul closes it by saying, all the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. See, the gospel had penetrated to the heart of power This is like saying the gospel is there. Believers are living and working in the White House, in the Congress, in the Supreme Court. So don't try to domesticate the gospel. The world is always going to think that it's foolish. But when we empty the gospel of its foolishness, we empty it of its power because it is this message of what Jesus has done for us that brings people to life. And our job Our job is not to edit it. You can't improve on the gospel. Our job is just to share it and tell it and deliver it, and as we do, to have confidence in it. Here's the last thing I want you to see. What does an Acts 29 church do to continue the mission? Well, we do what Paul did. We pour ourselves out for the king till we see the king. That's what Paul did. 
And some of you are thinking, what happened to Paul? Well, I'm going to tell you what we know, okay? And you're welcome because I'm your pastor and I love you. So I'm going to explain some things to you. Uh, From everything we see in the final chapters of Acts, from what we can piece together from Paul's last uh, epistles, uh, from what we read in church history, uh, Paul was likely released after these two years that Luke refers to, 62, 63 AD, around there. And it's not really a surprise to hear that because the tone of Acts 28, if you read it, and then the tone of Philippians 1, Paul wrote that while he was in prison, shows that Paul is pretty confident he's going to be released. Probably what happens is that he's kept for this two-year period. His accusers never show up, and they let him go. And after his release, there are indications that Paul does make it to Spain to proclaim the gospel there, but he hears of trouble in the churches that he's planted earlier, and so he comes back to Macedonia and Asia Minor. He visits those churches, and it's during this, what for us is a shadowy period, we don't know too much, that he writes 1 Timothy and Titus. And then he gets arrested again, probably in Troas. And after this second arrest, he gets put in prison, and while he's imprisoned, He writes 2 Timothy. Maybe you remember he says in 2 Timothy 4.13, bring the cloak that I left in Troas. And and that's because the emperor Nero has lost his mind by now and he's persecuting Christians. And it's during this time, probably around 67 AD, that Paul was beheaded. When you read 2 Timothy, You see a difference. Paul's not speaking optimistically about being released. He knows that the end is near. Here here are his final words. He says to Timothy, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And I just have to ask, will that be said of us? Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. And then he says, verse 16, at my first defense, that's what he's talking about earlier in Acts, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. That's probably a reference to Nero, the beast. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Do you think that Paul regretted fighting a good fight. I mean, he lost his head. But the good news is the Bible tells us when we get to heaven, we're going to get new bodies. Anybody looking forward to that day? And our God is really good at putting heads back on. See, one day, the Bible tells us we're going to see Paul, and he's going to have a new head. And on that day, we're not just going to see Paul. We're going to get to meet all these people that we've been reading about and learning about. We're going to get to sit around the table with Peter and and with Philip and with Tabitha and with Cornelius and with Barnabas and Lydia and Luke, on and on. All of these people who have been brought safely into God's heavenly kingdom. And I just want to guarantee you on that day, If you pour out your life, 
in service to the king, you will not regret it. You will not regret it. Because the king, he is worthy. He is worthy. Would you bow your heads? We pray together. Father God, uh, we can never thank you enough for Jesus, for the gospel, for your salvation. And Lord, we simply pray that we would not waste our lives. But Lord, we would make the most of every opportunity you give us to tell people about Jesus. May we do that faithfully. May we do that patiently. May we do that in word and in deed until the day that we see him. Grant us boldness, Father. Grant us grace. We pray these things now in the name of Jesus. And all God's people together say, Amen.